Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. It's good to see all of you this evening, and if you have your Bible, join me in the book of 2 Corinthians, and there are two texts that we're going to give some attention to tonight after we do our introduction, one being chapter 5, verses 14 through 21, which probably contains the key and crucial text in the book, in particular verses 17 through 21, and then also we'll take a moment and look at chapter 12, verses 1 through 10, a remarkable autobiographical section of Paul's letter that uh, speaks of an experience that uh, would indeed transcend probably anything we'd ever read anywhere else, and yet one that he does uh, put in proper perspective in terms of what really matters in your walk with the Lord. But in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 21, Paul writes, For the love of God or the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, all things are of God who has reconciled. And I would argue that the key word... Uh, in the first seven chapters of the book of Second Corinthians is this idea of reconciled or reconciliation. Indeed, the word will occur one, two, three, four, five times in rapid succession here in verses 18 through 21. Now, all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For, and many have said, I've read on a number of occasions, this was the great R.G. Lee's favorite verse in the Bible, pastor of the Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis, Tennessee, for many years. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And then perhaps a single verse in chapters 8 and 9, which go together, that again will isolate the theme of that, chapter 8 and verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. And that becomes Paul's motivation for the manner in which we should give to the Lord. And then in chapter 12, look at chapter 12, verse 1 through verse 10. It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come, though, to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows. Such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows, how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which it is not lawful For a man to utter. Now, of such a one, I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast except in my infirmities. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will speak the truth. But I refrain, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees to be or hears from me, and lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations. A thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore... I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches, in needs and persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then 
I am strong. And those three texts, in many ways, I think, capture the essence of 1 through 7, which is part 1, 8 and 9, which is part 2, and then chapters 10 through 13, which is part 3. Now, look at the first page then, the book of 2 Corinthians. We might give it the theme, the message and the ministry of reconciliation. And though that will dominate the first seven chapters, the theme of that still continues on in chapter 8 through chapter 13. The author is Paul. No one ever contests that. The recipients is stated in the first two verses of chapter 1, the church at Corinth. The date of writing, not too far after 1 Corinthians, probably 56, 57 A.D., putting in context, you're about 25 to 27 years uh, after the ministry of the Lord Jesus. You're about uh, 13 to 15 years before the destruction of Jerusalem. And uh, Paul is moving now uh, to, to return back to Jerusalem as he completes uh, a missionary journey. So the place of writing is Macedonia. The key verses, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. Summarizing from these 13 chapters, the purposes of writing, Paul is going to defend his ministry. In this book, more than any other ministry, Paul will defend who he is as an apostle of Jesus Christ. It is under attack. He is being challenged. And so Paul, in essence, throws down the gauntlet, in essence, takes off the gloves and says, you want to talk about authenticity for ministry? I'll be willing to stack my credentials against anyone. Although he says, I feel like a fool for doing this. But since you uh, Corinthians are willing to put up with such foolishness, then I'll enter into the foolishness as well. And he does it in a very ironic, uh, satirical kind of a way. It really is a very fun book. A badly neglected book, but a book that has some very difficulties, some great difficulties in exactly unraveling what Paul is doing when he goes back and forth in this kind of, um, of a foolish, playful kind of way of talking. Then in chapters 8 and 9, you probably have the greatest text in all the Scripture concerning grace-giving. And if I were, for example, going to try to motivate this church and how it ought to give to the work of the Lord, I would simply walk through verse by verse 2 Corinthians 8 and 2 Corinthians 9. As I read a moment ago, the heart of his argument is this. Look at what God gave when he gave his son. When it comes to giving, look to the cross, look to Christ, and then give out of the overflow and gratitude of what he has done for you. Thank you, John. I just, uh, this crazy North Carolina weather. My air conditioning is on in my house. I had it turned on in my office today. Uh, This is December. I mean, we're supposed to be in overcoats and stuff, and we're, you know, could be in T-shirts this evening and, you know, that stuff in the air. So I'm just as much of a sufferer as some of you, and so we'll get my, if I need to get my water again, I'll do that again. But thank you, John. And so, Grace Giving 8 and 9, a correction and confrontation of false apostles in 10 through 13, and then, as we just read a moment ago, one of the most magnificent declarations in all of the Bible of the sufficiency of God's grace, no matter what may be going on in your life. I provide again for you a structural chart on page 2 that shows you in an outline form. Some of us think very good in seeing things laid out in this kind of a way. I'll just note a couple of the highlights here, the uniqueness of the book. This is one of Paul's most intense and personal letters. It is not all that systematic. It reads more like a journal, almost like a biogra- an autobiographical diary. These are the words of a man who expresses his deepest feelings both about himself and the ministry that God has given to him. And I've given these summaries to the three major sections, 1, 3 through 7, 16, the fellowship of the ministry. Chapter 8 and chapter 9, the stewardship of the ministry. And chapter 10 through chapter 13, leadership of the ministry. And I believe in giving credit to him. Credit is due. I first came across this way of analyzing 2 Corinthians when I was in seminary, driving over every day from Dallas, listening to verse-by-verse expositions by Stephen Olford. Dr. Olford did an absolutely magnificent job of preaching through 2 Corinthians. And again and again and again, he talked about the fellowship, the stewardship and the leadership of the ministry. And I think that does indeed capture quite well what each of the major sections is about. So if you look at the bottom, the key verses, what is the fellowship of the ministry? We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. 
What is the essence of the stewardship of the ministry? God loves a cheerful giver. And what is the essence of leadership for Paul? I will not be put to shame, and I'm willing to put on the table what my life, what my message, what my ministry has been to authenticate the legitimacy of my apostleship and, indeed, the legitimacy of my ministry to you there at the church at Corinth. Look at page 3, then, and we'll just note very quickly, again, Paul is the author of the book. It is stated in chapter 1, verse 1, chapter 10, verse 1. Even the most liberal scholarship does not question this. It has often been referred to as the defense of his life, where, again, he is extremely uh, autobiographical. He's very passionate. Uh, He's very blunt. And, yes, he feels the necessity to do so because he is confronting rebellious and uh, carnal persons at the church at Corinth. The date of writing, and this will kind of uh, tie into that chart that we looked at last week that showed you the four letters and the three visits. Here it is in a summary fashion. After writing 1 Corinthians, which actually was the 2 Corinthian letter, as we saw, Paul visited Corinth. This was his second visit to Corinth, and it was a very painful experience involving a problem of discipline. Paul then wrote to them what we call the sorrowful or severe letter, which has been lost to us. This was actually Paul's third letter to the church. Titus, his hitman, carried this severe letter to Corinth, and then on his return he was able to give Paul good news that the Corinthians had responded well to this severe letter. Thus, in relief and thanksgiving, Paul wrote 2 Corinthians from Macedonia, probably in the fall of A.D. 56 or 57, making 2 Corinthians actually the fourth letter that Paul had written. Now, I taught 2 Corinthians a number of years ago at Criswell College, and in doing my research, I kind of come to this conclusion. Many teachers point out, but boy, chapters 10 through 13 are really, really, really different in tone than chapters 1 through 9. Why do you think that is so? And it has caused some people, as I'll show you in just a moment, to argue that actually chapters 10 through 13 is the severe letter. And later it gets tacked on to the end of 2 Corinthians 1 through 9. I think there's a better solution. I think that when Titus came back and gave him good news, Paul quickly sat down and began to write 2 Corinthians. Do I think that Paul wrote 2 Corinthians in a single sit-down sitting? No. I suspect, like in many of his letters, he wrote over several days, perhaps even several months. My supposition, my, my theory is this. Paul got through chapter 9, is about ready to send the letter off, and somehow word comes back again and says, Hey, even though things are better, even though they listened to your severe letter, even though Titus was able to kind of get things back in tow, the moment he left, those false teachers began to rise up again, and they began again to criticize your authority, question your message, and Paul says, Well, doggone it. And he sits down and he fires off and adds to 1 through 9, 10 through 13. In essence, he says, when I get a chance, I'm coming. And we're going to have a face-to-face showdown because I am sick and tired of you messing up that church that I poured 18 months of my life into. And so I don't think there's any reason to question the unity of 2 Corinthians. But I do think it is possible that there is a time lapse between his finishing through chapter 9 and then writing chapters 10 through 13. And again, there's a very stark difference in just tone between the first nine chapters and the last four chapters. Drop down then to the purpose. The church at Corinth had been invaded by false teachers, probably Judaizers, who emphasized three things. Ritualistic legalism, special knowledge or gnosis, And they bragged, these were charismatics, who bragged about their spectacular spiritual experiences. In other words, they were arguing that we are superior to you in experience. We have a higher higher level of spiritual attainment and accomplishment because of these unbelievable experiences that we've had. And in essence, that text I read a moment ago has Paul saying, you think you've had something? Well, if we want to again sit down and put on the table our spiritual experiences to summarize it and to make it in a modern parlance, I'm going to slam dunk you with what happened to me. But then he's going to turn and say, but you know what, bottom line? I don't really give a rip what kind of experience you've had. I don't even give a rip what kind of experience I've had. 
I discovered that God's greatest work is done. Not through speaking in tongues, not through being slain in the spirit, not through miracles or signs or any other kind of thing like that. God's greatest work is done in and through my weakness. You completely misunderstand, you charismatic legalist, about what God is doing when he does his very best work in your life and in my life. Now, apparently, these false teachers had joined up with a small, but you know, it's often the case in the church, isn't it? A small but vocal opposition group within a church. The majority of the people were with Paul. But you had this small, loudmouth group that were stirring up trouble and causing difficulty, and they were putting it all on Paul. They were challenging his integrity. They were challenging his ministry. They were challenging his authority. Why, indeed, there were charges of, and you just go through the book. I went in through it and highlighted them. Insincerity, he doesn't keep his word. Financial indiscretions, why do you think he wants that love offering? He ain't going to give it to the Jerusalem church. He's going to pocket the money for himself. He's spiritually impotent. Oh, he writes powerful letters, but he's a wuss when he stands up before everybody else. He is rhetorically ineffective. Why, have you heard of Paulus preach? Why, Paul would never get invited to, why, he'd never get invited to the SBC pastor's conference. Why, we probably wouldn't invite him to the North Carolina pastor. Maybe we might invite him to a local associational meeting, but he wouldn't be the premier speaker. Because Paul can't deliver the goods when it comes to his ability to preach. And so all of these things were being leveled against Paul. And Paul then in response lays bare his soul. And he says, look, you consider carefully my personal life, my ministry as it was revealed in your midst. Remember when Paul went to Corinth, Paul did not take any money initially. Paul was a, a what? Tent maker. And Paul tells us in one of his letters he did so that the integrity of the gospel not be brought into question. In fact, he basically saying, who was asking for money? Who was requiring that you pay them before they would preach or teach? And it was not me. Now, you know what they did? They turned that on Paul, too. And they said, well, if he was good enough, he'd ask for money. So, you know, he's, he's, he's blamed if he does. He's blamed. You know, you don't win either way when you've got people that oppose you for unscrupulous reasons. And so it did not matter what he did. They would find a way to turn it against Paul. But Paul says, look, my ministry was impeccable. My message was true and life-changing. In fact, what is the evidence of the truth of Paul's message while it was the conversion of the Corinthians themselves? In other words, for the Corinthians to question Paul's ministry and message was to question their own authentic Christian experience. And that was a very difficult thing for them to counteract. So he encourages them then to prepare for a forthcoming visit, which will be his third, make ready a poverty relief collection for the church at Jerusalem, which they had started a year previously but had failed to complete. And then he concludes with a vigorous defense of the legitimacy of his apostleship, uh, a stern warning that he will deal personally with any troublemakers upon his arrival. And that then brings the letter to a conclusion. I talked about the unity of the epistle a moment ago. I'll let you read that on your own. I think the evidence is overwhelming that 2 Corinthians 1 through 13 has always stood as we have it in our Bible today. And there's no really good reason for finding an interpolation at 614 through 71 or saying that chapters 10 through 13 were part of a different letter altogether. But then some things that have been done in recent years in scholarship, I think, have actually helped us understand this particular book better. And that is what it's called genre criticism. In other words, did Paul adopt a particular style of writing that will tip us off to his argument, uh, to his thinking, and to his manner of trying to persuade the Corinthians of his way of thinking? And I think that is true. Because I do think Paul patterned 2 Corinthians after what could be called an apologetic model of discourse. In other words, and you'll find this as a common pattern, even in non-Christian uh, writings of antiquity, especially of this particular period. You begin with an initial note of thanksgiving coupled with mutual encouragement. In other words, if you're writing apologetic, you're trying to persuade your audience of thinking in a certain kind of a way. Well, what's the first thing you do? Blast them or bless them? How do you win friends and influence people? You come up, put your arm around them, well, bless God, brother, you're just doing a great job. I'm so proud of you. I think you're wonderful, and I love you, and boy, you've just been a blessing to me. 
Now, might I just bring one thing, though, up that maybe perhaps we need to address? Now, you're usually going to have a better hearing. If you start off with a little sugar, my, uh, my Hebrew teacher, uh, uh, H. Leo Edelman, used to say that you catch bees better with honey than you do with vinegar. And many a minister would be well served to learn that. Now, sometimes you just got to give them this medicine straight up. But a little honey, if possible, is not a bad thing. Evidently, Paul could not do that with the Galatians. He was so ticked off. But not quite that ticked yet with the Corinthians. So he starts off with a nice word. And then after encouraging them, the body of the defense reviews areas of misunderstanding. And he seeks to clear them up. He restates or gives additional evidence that will shed new light on the situation. They'll be factual emotional and moral proofs that he'll put out there for them to consider. And then the tone of the argument will vary. Why, he may start with an appeal, move to a warning, but then at the end express great confidence that I'm sure you're going to do the right thing. And that pattern really follows when he talks to them about giving. Uh, He starts off by appealing to them to give uh, to the church at uh, Jerusalem. Uh, He uses the Macedonians as an example of those who did what they said they would do. Oh, no, they did even more. But you Corinthians started an offering last year and never completed it. But I'm convinced you'll do the right thing. I have confidence that by the time I get there, there'll be an offering in place for me to carry to that church that's going through a very difficult time. And so Paul moves from appeal to warning to assurance that you're going to do the right thing. And so when you view 2 Corinthians this kind of way in an overarching pattern, it really does hang very well nicely together. So page 5. Structure of the book, as I've said several times, it really does divide very easily and naturally into three major sections. 1 through 7, 8 and 9, 10 through 13. If you were summarizing what the book is about, the, the ministry and the message of reconciliation, well, you could say there is a call to preach the word of reconciliation, and there is a call to perform the work of reconciliation. And as we saw in our structural chart, Paul extols the fellowship of the ministry, he encourages the stewardship of the ministry, and he explains leadership in the ministry. Thus, Paul could be summarized as saying, to be a successful minister in these three areas, we must have a sense of urgency, a soul of purity, and a stamp of quality. For those of you that are in seminary, guys, those three things ought to be emblazoned on your heart. That by God's grace, I will always be urgent in my ministry, be pure in my soul, and there is indeed a stamp of authenticity and quality to who I am and to what I say. Well, with that as a very quick introduction, and it's really not a hard book to introduce, let's look at these two major texts. First of all, 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 21, the God who makes all things new, three major ideas I see here from the Apostle Paul. Number one, In Christ, we participate in the miracle of reconciliation. That is verses 14 through 17. And in that miracle, Paul says four things will occur. First of all, you will have a new passion. Verse 14, for the love of Christ, the New King James says, compels us. You may have a translation that says, constrains us. The love of Christ constrains us because we judge. We understand that one died for all, then all died. And that sounds a whole lot like Romans 5, 12 through 21. Now, the love of Christ. Does that phrase mean my love for Jesus or Jesus' love for me? And I believe it is the latter idea. Paul is saying, knowing that Christ loves me, compels me, constrains me, it guides me, it causes me to live this way and not another way. It's very easy to to think this through, guys, when you think about the fact that you are loved by your mate. You're loved by your children. It will make a difference in the way you conduct yourself as a husband and as a father. God knows my heart. I would rather die than break Charlotte's heart or disappoint my four sons. I would. I would rather God take me out tonight in a car wreck going home then I would do something that would disappoint her or disappoint them. And I think about that. And the love that my boys and my wife has for me constrains me. Well, Paul says even more. Should the love of Christ compel, constrain, guide you, you have a new passion. That new passion is an awareness of the great love that Christ has for 
me. But then secondly, a new priority, verse 15. For he died for all, that those who live, what? Should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. In other words, Paul says, my new priority is Jesus. His will, his purpose, his plan, whatever it is that he wants in my life, that is what I want to. I no longer live for me, but for him who died and rose again. So I have a new priority. But then thirdly, I have a new perspective. Verse 16, therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, according to external uh, distinctions, external criterion. No, we no longer do that. Uh, But in contrast, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet we now know him thus no longer as well. The bottom line is this. Having seen Christ now through the eyes of faith, I see him differently. At one time I, I viewed him as simply a foolish Jewish man from Nazareth who got nailed to a cross for being a troublemaker. Now I see him as the risen and resurrected Lord and God of all creation. And therefore, I don't judge him anymore. According to his external uh, criteria, I now look at him with the eyes of faith as the Son of God, the Messiah, the Lord of all that there is. So, Paul says, if that applies to the way I see Christ, from the greater to the lesser, I now judge no one any longer according to the flesh. doesn't matter what they look like on the outside. God sees everybody the same on the inside as a sinner in need of God's saving grace. I have a new perspective. And, again, I could stay there all night. Uh, I shared with the seminary um, uh, community back when I preached on this text in, um, in August at our opening convocation. And I was preaching one time in Wilmington, uh, North Carolina. And it was not even in my notes. But as I got to that verse, I felt prompted to just kind of run down that trail for a minute. And I said, you know, it says there that we uh, do not judge anyone according to the flesh. I said, you know, when my boys were little, I used to tell them that God was colorblind. And to later discover that three of my four sons are colorblind. Nathan and, and Jonathan and Paul are colorblind. They can't tell a red light from a green light. So be careful when you're on the road if an Aiken is in town because they may not stop. They, I asked them, I said, well, how do you know when to stop? They said, well, the one on the bottom's green. And I thought, you know, I've been in some little country towns in the south where those puppies are turned upside down, even sideways. I said, what do you do then? They said, well, I just wait till the other car starts. Well, I said, that's good. That's good. You wait till the, in fact, you wait till several of those other cars start coming. If someone starts blowing the horn behind you, then it's going to be safe for you to move on out there. And so they actually, you know, being so concrete as little boys, they said, you mean God can't tell the difference between a red light and a, a green light? And I said, well, that's not exactly what I had in mind. Really what I was saying is, guys, God doesn't care what color your skin is. It doesn't matter to him if you are... Um, Uh, Red or yellow, black or white or brown. You know, the song we sing, Jesus Loves Little Children. I said, that that song's really true. And so I don't know why. I guess I was just in a frisky mood that night. But I said to this church, I said, you know, folks, I want to tell you something. And I'm going to tell you, some of you may be offended. Well, get over it. Uh, Go home tonight. Get on your knees. Repent of your sin. And God will forgive you. Because what I'm about to say is the gospel truth. I said to those, um, those, that church that night, look, guys, if I had to choose between one of my boys marrying a white girl that was mean as the devil and would cause them all sorts of grief and sorrow for the rest of their life, or they were to marry a black girl who was godly, who loved the Lord Jesus with all of her heart and who would love them and be a good wife and good mother, not only would I prefer that my sons marry that black girl, I would perform the wedding. I'll tell you what, folks. You sucked the oxygen out of that auditorium, boom, just like that. I mean, I'm up there in the pulpit, and I feel the air conditioning come on. I mean, it it went to 32 degrees Fahrenheit going down from there. And the next morning, the sweet pastor, who was a sweet pastor, picked me up, take me to lunch, and he stammered and stuttered and spit and spattered. And finally, after about an hour, he just blurts out at me, why did you say what you said last night? And I said, what are you talking about? Well, I knew. What are you talking about? But that, that, now, now, we're not a prejudiced church. I said, then why are you uh, so uh, energized? He said, well, my phone rang all night. I said, really? But you're not a racist church, are you? He said, well, now, 
And he just kept, I said, I'm listening. I said, and you know, uh, my, my brother, if, if I've got a biblical uh, imbalance to what I said or a biblical error, you know, you point out to me right now from the word and tonight I'll get back up in your church and I'll apologize and I'll repent and retract what I said last night. And, of course, he knew the Bible. He said, well, I, I can't do that. I said, I know you can't. And I said, anything that judges people on the basis of skin color is sin in the heart. That's just the bottom line. Folks, I know where I'm standing. I know I'm in North Carolina. I grew up in Georgia. Uh, I can remember my own home church years ago. The deacons voted to not allow us to have E.B. Hill as a, an evangelist in our church. Our pastor had arranged because he was black. Well, our church sinned against God, missed out on a wonderful blessing, and we were the poorer for it, uh, not Dr. Hill. And so Paul here just says, look, external criteria, they don't matter one whit. And then he speaks of the new possibilities in Christ. Verse 17, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Uh, I shared again, if you look at it in the original text, Paul gets so excited, he leaves out the verbs. Literally, verse 17 would read, Therefore, if anyone in Christ a new creation... There's no verb. He just takes off. Anyone in Christ, a new creation. Then he finally gets one in there. Old things have passed away, and they passed away with a permanency. Behold, all things have become new. There really is a place where you can start over. It's in the place called in Christ. Then Paul moves to say, all right, in light of this, we now proclaim the message of reconciliation and we perform the ministry of reconciliation. For time's sake, I'll put those two together. Now, all things are of God. All things what? All things of verses 14 through 17. This new passion, this new priority, this new perspective, these new possibilities. All of these kind of things are of God who has reconciled us, the first of five times now, has reconciled us. He has brought peace between enemies. He has brought peace between those who were at hostility. He has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. And what? He has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, what is reconciliation? It is this. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not reckoning or imputing or putting to their account their trespasses, and that message of reconciliation he has committed to us. He calls it here the word of reconciliation. Now, Paul then expands what he means by the ministry and gives you a beautiful metaphor. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. That's what it means to be engaged in the ministry of reconciliation. As one man as well said, you're either a good ambassador or a bad ambassador. But you are, and I am, we are all ambassadors of Jesus Christ. And so, now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were, and to my way of thinking, this is one of the most amazing phrases in all of Scripture, as though God were pleading... Through us. To imagine the God of this universe pleading for sinners to be reconciled to Him. He doesn't need to plead with us. He should not have to stoop to our level, condescend to who we are and where we are, and yet He does. We heard it magnificently explained today from Philippians 2 6 through 8 at the seminary. God took the form of a bondservant, came in the likeness of a man, and humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. I love Stephen Davies' analogy, like a man becoming a flea. That's what God did for us. He became lower than a flea to communicate to us on a level that we would understand. And so then we are ambassadors. We plead with men to be reconciled to God. And here is a beautiful verse that captures the essence of what Christ did. Some have referred to this as the great transaction. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. I love it. We gave him what was ours, our sin. He gave us what was his, his perfect righteousness. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And there is the wonderful ministry and message of reconciliation. All right? Take your Bible.
Turn to this last outline this evening, chapter 12, verses 1 through 10. We've simply entitled it, When God Accomplishes His Most Perfect Work. Again, the context, Paul is being attacked by the false teachers. Paul says over there in chapter 11 and verse 4, they are preaching another Jesus. They come from a different spirit, and they're preaching a different gospel. And amazingly, you're putting up with that. Then they come along, and they talk about how wonderful they are. In fact, Paul says, they're not apostles. They're super apostles. Now, he's being sarcastic. He says, you hear them talk, and you're talking about, you know, five-star, all-star apostles, and I'm just a little minor leaguer. Well, if we want to talk about things that people can boast about, let's just kind of, you know, again, put everything on the table. Look at chapter 11 and verse 21, the last phrase, I speak foolishly, but I am bold also. So here we go. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I'm speaking as a fool. I am more. You want me to prove it? Here we go. In labors, more abundant. In stripes, above measure. In prisons, more frequently. In deaths, often. To be specific, from the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in the deep. Journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, perils in the city, perils in the wilderness, perils of the sea, perils among false brethren, weariness and toil, sleeplessness often in hunger, thirst, fasting often, cold and naked. And besides all of that mess, the other thing which comes up on me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. As bad as all that other stuff is, that is nothing compared to how I feel right now when I look at you and think you're about to be sucked in by these interlopers, these false teachers who preach a false Jesus, a false gospel, and have a different spirit. And you're so doggone stupid, you put up with it. Now, he's, he's hot. I, I, I'm quite calm tonight in comparison to the good Dr. Paul. And so, verse 29, who is weak, and I'm not weak? Who is made to stumble, and I do not burn with indignation? If I must boast, I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I'm not lying. Implication is, but they are. And so then he tells another story about humiliation. And so then finally comes to chapter 20. He says, look, let's just talk about what it means. To see God do his best work, number one, when God accomplishes his most perfect work, spiritual ecstasy will teach us the wisdom of consistency. I ought to say it another way. God is not concerned with how high you jump, but he's very impressed with how long you run and stay in the race. So chapter 12, verse 1, it is doubtless. There's no question about this. It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. He's told us in Galatians 6, I only boast in what? The cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. But given the way you all are listening to these false teachers, I'll enter into their way of argument, though I don't intend to see any benefit come from it. I will come, first of all, then, and talk to you about visions and revelations of the Lord, and actually the phrase of the Lord is fronted in the original text. I will come of the Lord to visions and revelations. And so to kind of soften what he's about to say, I have no doubt Paul is talking about himself in the following verses. But he does so in the third person to try to distance himself from it, even though I don't think there's any question he is talking about Himself. So what does he say? I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, and some have tried to identify this with his stoning at Derby. We don't know for sure when this particular event happened. That may be the case. Paul is, I think, talking about some type of experience that perhaps was near death, certainly of a very ecstatic nature. I know a man in Christ 14 years ago. Now, Paul would say, and by the way, I've not talked about this for 14 years. I've never brought it up. In fact, I never intended to, never wanted to. There was no need to until you all started buying into this wrong-headed theology. So I know a man 14 years ago now, let me be honest, whether he was in the body, I do not know. Out of the body, 
I do not know. You say, why does he do that? He covers his bases both with the Jewish and the Greek audience. In the body, the Jewish people had a very high view of the body. They believed in resurrection of the body. Uh, the Greeks believed that the body was the prison house of the soul and that salvation ultimately was released from the body. And so Paul says, look, I don't, I don't know. Still in the body, I the body. I don't know, doesn't matter. God knows. Such a one was caught up into the third heaven. First heaven where the birds fly and the clouds uh, move about. The second heaven where the stars and the sun, the Milky Way. But the third heaven... The very presence of God himself. So I went all the way up into the very presence of God. In fact, if you doubt that, he's going to restate the same thing again in verse 3, but with a different picture. I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I, I do not know. God knows. He was caught up into paradisio. The word paradise, very interestingly, does not recur all that many times in the Scripture. In fact, the Believer's Study Bible has a wonderful footnote that points out it occurs only three times in the New Testament. Jesus, in Luke 23:43 says to the thief on the cross, Today you will be with me where? In paradise. It also occurs in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 7 as a promise to the overcomers that they will indeed eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. I am convinced that the paradise metaphor is simply a picture of heaven. The third heaven, paradise, are the same thing. And so Paul says this guy was caught up into heaven itself, and he heard, and the New King James says, inexpressible words. Some have a translation that says words that cannot be uttered, words that are not lawful for a man to speak. Now, that phrase can mean one of two things. Paul may mean by that it is inappropriate for someone this side of heaven to talk about these things. It's not right. We don't understand it. We're not prepared for it. It may be that Paul is saying human language is inappropriate or is inadequate to talk about it. In other words, it's just inadequate there's no way that I could describe for you what I saw when I was taken into the third heaven. Either inadequate or inappropriate. Either way, Paul says, yeah, I had this great experience. I even went into heaven itself, and I and it's always ticked me off. I am not going to tell you a word. I'm not going to tell you one thing that happened. I mean, I'd like to know what he saw myself. Did he get to talk to Jesus? Did he see Moses? Abraham? You know, what did he do? Well, he didn't tell. He didn't tell us. Was Gabriel up there? Michael? I mean, what were they doing? He says, I ain't telling you. I ain't telling you. You say, why not? Because it doesn't matter. Wait, 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 wait. Time out. Anybody has that experience today? Son, where are we going to have them tonight? Paul and Jan. The dynamic duo heretics. Yes, I did say the dynamic duo heretics. Maybe they'll have their buddy Benny Hinn and... Ken Copeland and the rest of those loony birds on the uh, show with them. If you think I'm being harsh, oh, I'm not even beginning to get started. They preach false gospels. They teach wrong theology. And to my utter amazement, some of our people in our churches are stupid enough to watch that junk and give them money. God forgive you. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. You say, you don't believe their message? No, I don't believe their message. I don't believe as they teach that you and I can become a god. That's a damnable heresy. That's what Paul Crouch believes. That's what Jan believes. That's what Kenneth Copeland believes. That's what Kenneth Hagin did believe. His theology is correct now. He's dead. Um, That is what Benny Hinn teaches. And yet we say, but but they're on on TBN. So what? What do you think Satan would like to drop in his false teachers? And so Paul says, I'm going to tell you something. That kind of stuff doesn't mean a thing. In fact, he says, of such a one, I will boast, no, I will not boast except in my infirmities. Verse 6, now don't you miss this. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, or I will speak the truth. In other words, I did have such an experience. But I refrain, lest anyone should think of me above what, what, what he sees me to be, or hears from me. Paul says, it doesn't matter. What do you see in my daily life? What do you see in my daily walk? Do you see integrity? Do you see utter transparency? 
Do you see authenticity? Do you see someone who's willing to make great sacrifices for the cause of Christ and the gospel? Is that what you see? By the way, compare that to these false teachers who evidently were squeezing the people for money and expecting to be honored and put up on the pedestal as their new, wonderful, spiritual leaders. And Paul says, you know, you just missed it when it comes to how God evaluates things. And very quickly, Paul said, I'll tell you what, when you have difficulty... Then God will lead you to the wisdom of dependency, verse 7 through 9. And least I, lest I should be exalted. Paul admits that experience I had 14 years ago, yet I could have gotten puffed up about it. I could have thought I was really something. And so that I might not be exalted beyond measure by the abundance of the revelations. A thorn in the flesh. It could be a stake was given to me. Implied, given to me by God, who is indeed a messenger of Satan to buffet me. The word buffet there means to box, to beat. God gave me a thorn in the flesh to beat me up so I would not be exalted above measure. Now, I love the fact that Paul does not tell us what his thorn in the flesh was. Uh, I've got uh, a journal article that I wrote on this one time, and I think I cataloged close to 100 different uh, possibilities as to what the thorn in the flesh was. I think some of the funniest ones are his wife. Um, I'm not going to even pursue that a little bit. Uh, I don't think Paul was ever married, so I don't think it was his wife. Uh, he has been said to perhaps have had epilepsy. Uh, perhaps he had um, problem with false teachers. Oh, they go, gout. Oh, I mean, just on and on and on and on and on. My own personal opinion is that Paul had an eye problem. Uh, that when he saw the Lord on the Damascus Road and was blinded, even though God gave him his sight later, uh, he didn't give it all the way back. And I think that may be supported by the fact that in Galatians, Paul says, see with what large letters I write in my own hand. Why would he need to do that unless he had a hard time, you know, seeing with his own hand? And so I think, you know, the Lord may have given him that, that kept him humble. Uh, you know, if you've got to be, in essence, led around by the hand to go to some places sometimes, you just don't get all that puffed up about who you are. Uh, this um, morning, I won't chase this too far, I didn't know. And he's not ashamed to share. As we were walking down the aisle for Stephen Davy to preach, he looked up and he said, is there a way that we can get up on the platform without going up those steps? And I said, well, I, I think we can go back around the back. And I said, why? He said, well, I, I, I can't walk the steps. And I said, Really? Did, did you hurt yourself? And he said, no. Uh, I have a form of muscular atrophy that uh, struck me when I was 22. And I said, well, how's it doing? He said, oh, it's getting worse. He said, it's incurable. That There's nothing they can do about it. Um, I've lost uh, the complete use of one of the biceps in one of my arms. But that's, that's not a big deal. I, I can still move my arm pretty well. But he says, when I walk, I have to lock my knees in a certain way or I will, I'll fall. In fact, I embarrassed myself a few years ago, and so I just have to kind of lock my knees. And I said, well, um, how's it progressing? He said, well, the doctors told me when I first contracted at 22, I'd be in a wheelchair and a vegetable by the time I was 35. He said, I'm 46, and I'm feeling pretty good. I'm feeling extremely grateful. And he says, you know, and I don't mean this. And he said, I don't, I, I'm not trying to sound super spiritual because I'm not. But I really do thank God for what he did. Because you know how most 22-year-old guys are. We, we're pretty cocksure of ourselves. And we think we can just about do anything. And it really helped me understand what really does matter in life. And Paul would say the same thing. God gave me something to keep me humble. And so he says in verse 8, I pled with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And did God answer his prayer? Yes. And God said, no. No. You're going to keep the uh, thorn in the flesh till the day you die. Because my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect where? In Weakness, And Paul says, once I was able to finally grasp that, most gladly then, I would rather boast in my infirmities. Why, Paul? Because then the power of Christ may rest upon me. And so Paul says, finally, supernatural sufficiency will guide us to the wisdom of humility. 
Verse 10, therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, people talking bad about me, in needs, having to be led around to uh, be able to go where I need to go because I can't see, or maybe having to walk around and come up the backside where you can hold a railing because you can't walk up and down a set of stairs, in distresses, for Christ's sake, because when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, I'll tell you what, guys and gals, you can't believe that unless you're a Christian. The world would read that and the world would say, that's about the stupidest thing I've ever read. But for many of us tonight, we read that and you say, you know what? I know exactly. I know exactly what Paul is talking about. And he's right. Our God is indeed that kind of God. And that is indeed when our God does accomplish his most perfect work. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the perfect work that you do accomplish in our weaknesses in our inadequacies. And Lord, uh, I'll never forget my mentor, Dr. Patterson, telling me years ago that the 20 most gifted young men he had ever had the opportunity to be uh, a teacher, 18 were no longer in the ministry. They had washed out, messed up, fallen away. And I remember him saying, there really is great blessing from God in being weak. Not being all that brilliant. Not being all that articulate and gifted when you preach. Because if you don't have all of those gifts and abilities, then you have nowhere to turn but to the Lord. And trust and depend upon Him. And so God, I do thank you for the men that you do bless in incredible ways. But, Lord, I sure do thank you for the way you use those of us who aren't all that talented or gifted. Because when we are weak and we acknowledge that weakness, then we open the door for your floodgates to flow with your strength, your might, your power, your grace, and your glory. May we believe that. And may we trust in that and be faithful wherever it is that you plan us or send us. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost dying world. Your gifts will help to train more and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.